So you've heard quite a lot of words over the last few days and uh, quite a lot of, of things to digest. And I'm going to try this evening to um, continue this work of kind of pulling it all together a little. So some of this will be repetition and reminders and some of it just a, a sharing of how I see these things working working together, these qualities of the divine abidings, Brahma Viharas. <coughs> so just as in, in a sense, we aren't really separate from one another. It's like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about uh, interbeing, we inter-are. None of us really exists as an entity that's independent of the other people and the other conditions around us. And in the same way, we, we kind of separate off the, the Brahma Viharas to understand them and to talk about them and to see how they, they work and they manifest. But on another level, they actually, uh, they, they all merge back into one. They, they inter-are. So one, one metaphor that I find uh, really apt for this is the metaphor of the heart, which has four chambers that beat together and work together to support life. And they all need to work, and the heart works as a whole. And within the, the, the four Brahma Viharas, as they work together, there's the thing that, we speak about first and the thing which I think is that the foundation of all of them is the foundation of metta. So this unconditional friendliness towards all phenomena and all beings because as Catherine was saying yesterday we're always we, we exist in relationship to things so even when we're alone we're in relationship with ourselves whatever that is, and we begin, to, we begin to see that that's not necessarily as straightforward a thing as we, we thought in our meditation practice. So metta, we haven't um, spoken what, what the Buddha actually said, the description of metta. So uh, the words, the way that metta is spoken of in the, the metta sutta, the teaching of metta, is how, how one cultivates metta. Whatever living beings there may be, weak or strong, great or mighty, medium, short or small, seen or unseen, near or far away, born or to be born, may all beings be at ease. And just as a mother protects with her life, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Upwards and outwards, unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So it's a, it's a tall order, this unconditionality, but this is, this is the essence of metta. 
And then we have the fourth of them is equanimity, which kind of oversees the operation of all of them. So this word upeka is like uh, the, the sense of looking over, being able to see the bigger picture, to see what's needed to bring the other qualities into balance again, because they all work at rebalancing one another. And in a sense, each one implicitly contains the other ones within it. So, for example, when I experience mudita, I might feel real joy and delight in the happiness that somebody's having. But there's also a sense in which I, I might see that that happiness is conditioned upon certain circumstances being there. And that happiness, is, the circumstances are vulnerable to change. So there's already within the, the appreciation, the really uh, the appreciation of happiness that sees fully what's present is also the possibility of change and that this will leave. So compassion is just hovering there in the background and it's, it's ready to step in. And sometimes too we can, we can recognize that what's bringing somebody happiness isn't necessarily for their benefit. So we can both appreciate their their enjoyment or their happiness, but also see that perhaps that has implications, that there's also a cause for actually some, some compassionate concern. They might actually be uh, doing something that's it's bringing them a, a limited form of happiness or something that's not going, to, not going to serve them in the long run. And we can see that this changing, changing nature of things is beyond control. And then equanimity has to step in. And then at the same time, I might feel deep compassion for somebody's suffering. And yet see that that suffering is actually, uh, they're learning from that suffering. Or that suffering is doing something beautiful that's transforming them, opening their heart. And then there's also a sense of mudita in there for that person's growth, that person's experiencing, or the person the the opening to a different sort of level of freedom. And equanimity, I think, contains metta within it. So uh, I think metta is really there at the, at the base of even equanimity because there's a natural desire to stay in contact with experience and to care. And it was interesting that the phrases we had for equanimity this afternoon, they started with, I care, and dot, 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 dot. So metta is in there in the equanimity warming it up. It's based on a, a sense of unconditional friendliness. So equanimity is warmed up by metta and it cools down compassion. It cools down the qualities of compassion and the qualities of joy when these get heated up by attachment. So compassion can overheat and... Uh, fall into, into what's known as its near enemy, which I'll talk about in a moment.
And equanimity is maybe the most the most difficult of all these things to arrive at, and it's it's the fruit. It arises as the fruit or the culmination of development of practice, because it has this perspective of wisdom, and it includes a happiness. It's a happy quality, the deep happiness of real peace. Another expression for equanimity, as well as uh, upeka, is there's a, there's a phrase which is often used to, uh, to describe equanimity, which is called tatra majatata in Pali. And that means to stand in the middle of all this. So tatra, all of this, and maja is middle, and tata is to stand. So like a tree that stands in the middle and yet it bends in the wind. So the trees that bend in the wind are the trees that don't break. And equanimity actually stays equanimous by, in a way, being prepared for constant movement. Like it's constantly rebalancing itself. So just as when we stand, if we do standing meditation and you you sort of pay attention to the process of standing, you find that actually it's never completely still. There's always movement that has to happen to keep balance. So these qualities also have another, another aspect in which they they seem to be at the the same time a sort of guiding light or a guiding star pointing us towards what's possible, like a refuge or a a place that we, we can rest and come home to, but sometimes seems very far away. So it's something that we hold them in mind and it orients us. And at the same time, they're a a practice, they're something that we, we cultivate, that we we, it feels as if we're bringing them into being in our heart, although actually what we're doing is we're revealing the potential or getting in touch with the potential that's there in every situation, but it gets obscured. So there was a, um, there's a story of a, a Buddha statue that was found in the jungle in Burma, and it had been there for many years, and it was a huge concrete Buddha statue. And people used to go and pay respects to it and so on. And then one day, uh, the monks noticed that there was a crack in the concrete of the Buddha statue. And it turned out that inside this statue was a, a beautiful golden statue, and people had covered it up with concrete. I think there was war or conflict in the area at the time, and they covered it over with concrete to protect it. And this is like the heart that's inside each of us. It's actually uh, a golden manifestation of these beautiful qualities, but it gets covered over. We cover it over in order to to protect ourselves. So we're peeling back this concrete with mindfulness and immense patience. And we do this by dropping our, intent, our intention and looking to see what's, what's there, what's covering it up. 
And what happens when we do this is we start to notice the opposite. So when you look for something, generally you, you tend to see also not only what you're looking for, but you look for its opposite. You notice its opposite. So we've, we've alluded to this, but not uh, necessarily named it specifically, that each of the four qualities has what are called near and far enemies to it. So it's a, a, a quality that's completely the opposite and a quality that is very similar but not quite the same thing. So with metta, the opposite quality is hatred. So that's, I think, quite an easy one to spot. But what's not so easy is to spot when metta turns into attachment. So when we not only like something, love something, send it our goodwill, but because we like it, we want to take ownership of it, we want to possess it, we want to possess this person that we're feeling friendly feelings towards. And with karuna or compassion, then the opposite is cruelty. And that can be really obvious, like wanting to, wanting to destroy somebody. But there are lots of very subtle ways that we can be cruel and we don't even really notice. Like that kind of slight desire to punish somebody for having hurt us in some way. So maybe we, uh, somebody hasn't invited us to something and we find ourselves next time we meet them kind of contracting or cold-shouldering them. And there's this, almost feels like, you can feel like a, a sort of knife that goes into you and that's kind of turning out towards them. There are many really small ways. Or when we, when we go off into a sulk about something, you know, we're, are we actually trying to punish the person who's... Uh, who's made us feel uncomfortable. What are we trying to do to them? Are we wishing them ill? We, of course, we end up in these situations, we end up punishing ourselves. And the near, the near enemy of karuna is pity, or which we have, we have spoken about, which is the sense of actually falling down into the hole of somebody else's suffering with them. So they suffer, we suffer, and we, we suffer to a degree that we're no longer really able to help. So with Mudita, um, I spoke a bit about this this morning, and I might say, elaborate a little more on it now, that uh, the, the enemy of Mudita is envy, the opposite of uh, Feeling the joy is feeling joy for somebody else's joy is actually envy wants to uh, it, that it, it causes so much discomfort in us that we don't want the other person to have it. We want to take it away from them. And the near enemy is excessive exuberance. So perhaps the thing about envy is that uh, another thing that is sometimes quite is kind of close to envy but different or another way that we we uh, respond to other people's good fortunes or when we see good qualities in other people is with admiration and admiration is is not an unwholesome quality in the extent that we 
we recognize what's of value, we appreciate what's of value in people. Um, but it's different from mudita. So envy, um, appreciation, um, admiration can uh, sort of guide us towards what it is we value and what it is we want. But the thing, the thing with um, admiration is that it keeps, it keeps whatever we admire outside of us. So it's still something out there that's not here. And with mudita, it becomes, we actually, we actually resonate with the quality to the extent that it starts to manifest in us. And that's a kind of strange thing to take on board because we often see goodness and good qualities in other people and we think that person is so kind or so loving and I'm not. But what is it in you that recognises the kindness and the lovingness in them? If you really let yourself take it in, resonate with it, this is a quality that's inside you. It's not something that's just out there and the property. It's not the property of any particular person. It's just that we're locating it in the person out there. So a few other things that kind of get in the way of our experience of joy or mudita is the conditioning that we have, which is a, it's a, a biological conditioning to tend to notice what's wrong. So we fixate on lack. We tend to notice what we don't have rather than what we do have. And this is because we're programmed to notice threats, notice difficulties. This is a survival mechanism. But, um, you know, we don't live in the same situation that our ancestors did on the savannah. So actually many of these threats that we notice or we're primed to look out for are non-existent. But it can be really, really, really helpful to retrain ourselves to look for the full half of the glass and not the empty half of the glass. So for the last um, couple of months, I've been doing a, a practice with a dear, dear friend and colleague of mine um, of uh, gratitude, where we, at the end of each day, we think of five things that we're grateful for and we text each other or email each other these five things and it's having a really um, a really useful impact on uh, both for both of us in terms of noticing actually the good things that are around us and these can be really small trivial things or they can be something quite big and I find for me it's very it has it has various kind of dimensions to it. So I'll get so he's text at the end of the day, and sometimes it's just really sweet to receive her text and get a share of the good things that have happened to her that day. So it's almost like instead of my five, I get ten things to be happy about. But sometimes I can also notice there's a little twinge in there that. I might have had a really crummy evening or, um, and, and she's done something that I would have really liked to do. So 
uh, begin to see actually where there's there's a limit to my my mudita here and with that then i just feel the ouch and i recognize okay this is this is a moment for some compassion here and sometimes also for questioning well if if that's what i'd really like to be doing then maybe maybe i could find a way to be doing more of that and another thing that also i i notice is that uh, as we each sort of look for more and more um specific you get more specific about what it is that you enjoy in something or you notice notice one another becoming more specific and then it encourages you to actually look deeper into what actually is it about this experience that moves me or what do i enjoy about it so i really recommend i mean many of you probably are familiar with variations on this kind of gratitude practice but i've tried doing them before and i never really stuck with it for very long and there's something about doing it with somebody else that's uh, incredibly powerful and supportive so other things that get in the way of joy and mudita is this misunderstanding that somehow there's not enough to go round and that if you're happy somehow i'm not going to be happy too that your happiness is something that's been taken away from me so there was a story when i when i was a novice nun i remember being really struck by a story of two two monks young young men monks who had were practicing together in Thailand and they were being very uh, diligent and kind of competitive about who was doing more walking and who was doing more sitting and who seemed to be you know um practicing with the most the most zeal and integrity and they were kind of sizing each other up and beginning to feel this vibe of like you know I'm I'm doing this more seriously than you are I'm better at this and then one turned round to the other and said hey you know there's room in nibbana for both of us <laughs> it's like where do we think we're going that we we have to get there first and if we don't you know the other person is going to take up all the space so when competitive comes into our practice that sometimes i find that can be a useful reflection and then sometimes we feel that we're unworthy of happiness holding on to this belief that i don't deserve to be happy and this is a really deep seated thing that we need to need to question and we can also feel it's a, it's a feeling more than a than a thought that we're conscious of but the feeling that you're happy i'm unhappy and that this is a permanent state of affairs it's like if i if i commit to your happiness then somehow that means i'm committing to my unhappiness and these are, are permanent things i'm stuck here forever and that's all tied in i think with the the belief in that the conditions so that it's mistakenly identifying happiness with the conditions that produce it and the more we spend time dwelling with these qualities and really feeling them as as conditions that arise in the heart and we begin to see how actually they they're not nearly as dependent on the external circumstances as we thought they were then that tendency starts to uh, 
diminish. Also, I'm familiar with the feeling that it's kind of, or a doubt that it's, it's not okay to be joyful when other people are suffering. So we can um, see terrible things that are happening to people or for people. And probably many of you have been very touched by or um, moved by the victims of the earthquake in Nepal at the moment or what's happening in the Middle East or um, the people, uh, the, the immigrants who are making these attempts to cross the Mediterranean. And we look at the state of the world and then we think that actually, how can we be happy in the middle of this, that somehow our happiness is, it's, an, it's a negation of the things that are going on, that by doing that we ne- we're neglecting Um, all the difficulty that's out there. And this can be very strong also when it's somebody close to us who's suffering. It's like this person's having a really hard time and I somehow need to keep them company in that by being unhappy alongside. But when did our suffering ever help anybody else? So actually, as we expand the capacity for happiness, we resource ourselves. Somebody in in one of my groups today was talking about it being like uh, charging your battery so that you can then uh, step forward and charge other people's batteries. And uh, the Dalai Lama had something to say about this in terms of the development of compassion. So he says, for someone to develop genuine compassion towards others, first he or she must have a basis upon which to cultivate compassion. And that basis is the ability to connect to one's own feelings and to care for one's own welfare. Caring for others requires caring for oneself. And that reminds me of a a story that I've always liked from the the Pali Suttas about two acrobats. So at the time of the Buddha, there were these traveling acrobats who used to go around and do performances in the different villages and so on. And there was this acrobat whose name was actually Frying Pan. I think like Thai people in Thailand have these kinds of names today. I think the nickname is going to be the most strange things. Anyway, there was this acrobat called Frying Pan. So Frying Pan had a, a master. She was a, a, a woman, a young woman. And the trick was that she would balance on a pole on the top of, on the top of her master's head. And uh, they, would, they would do this performance around the villages. And they had a conversation. And the master said to her, I'll look out for you and you look out for me. And then we'll be safe and uh, None of us will come to any harm. And she said, no, no, that's not how we should do it. So you take care of yourself and I'll take care of myself. 
and that way neither of us will come to any harm. And some people reported this story to the Buddha and, he, and said, which one, which one of them was right? And the Buddha said, the girl is the person who's right. If she takes care of herself and her master takes care of himself, then she will stay balanced on the top of the pole and neither of them will come to any harm. So it's kind of like the oxygen masks on the aeroplane to put your own oxygen mask on before we're in a position to help other people. And this can be a really tricky, tricky thing to realize. So I think when I, when I first came to my Dharma practice or first found the Dharma, I was very, um, I'd say, very inexperienced and idealistic. And I saw a lot of problems out there in the world and not so many in here. And the Dharma seemed to me like quite a good way to put the world to rights. And so I started to practice on that basis. And it's only very slowly and painfully over time, as Catherine was saying you know, uh, last night, it took an awful long time to realize uh, that the, the fundamental need to love oneself. And I'd say the same thing, uh, the same thing definitely for me. It's taken a long time to stop looking at things out there and realizing that it, it comes back to the in here. And I hope what we're doing here this weekend is saving a lot of you a lot of time, actually, by pointing back to the essential. Yeah. A teacher who I, I love very much, James Baraz, he says that loving ourselves is very, very different from being self-obsessed. So loving ourselves is the greatest gift to the world. The more we see our innate goodness, the less we're preoccupied with wondering or proving if we're all right. So how much of what blocks us from experiencing and from sharing these qualities of the heart is our concern whether, whether we're all right, whether we're going to be all right or whether we're all right, whether we're acceptable If we're free from that preoccupation, then we're totally free to be there for other people, to help other people. One of the things that I found very useful is the work of uh, Brené Brown, who, who you can find on YouTube, who's an American researcher and psychologist, who's done a lot of work uh, investigating the phenomenon of shame. And I think this is uh, one of the things that really prevents us from going to these places that, uh, are, that block us. And for each of us, it's slightly, it's unique in a different way. Um, the places that block us from opening, from accepting what's here. Catherine was talking last night about the, the opening of the temple at Amravati, and I was a, a, a novice at that time, and I was there. 
and there were many, many monks from all around the world, different traditions, but some really famous monks who came from Asia who were reputed to have all sorts of special powers. And some of them were really sort of radiant beings who, who you just felt bathed in, in metta when you were around them. And uh, Catherine mentioned one person who she was really drawn to, and I particularly remember Mahagosananda, who was a very... Um, beautiful Cambodian monk who's he's dead now but um, I remember just sitting in front of him with a group of people and feeling that I was just having this kind of meta bath and it was really beautiful to receive and connect with that but I also remember from that time the experience of of just thinking there are there are beings here who can read what's going on in my mind and it was actually quite scary to think that there were, you know, several, probably more than one. And I don't know, I don't have first-hand experience. Nobody actually did this and said, I can see what's going on in your mind. But there was enough anecdotal evidence from people who had spent time around them or knew them to suggest that they might actually have this ability to read my mind. However you understand that, because sometimes you, know, you might see it as just a very deep power of intuition to actually really see someone really deeply. Um, but I remember that sense of, I, I don't really want them to see what's going on in here. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I dare say that, you know, still, I'm sure that still there are things... I might not want them to see. But the thing about Brené Brown is that she's, uh, she normalizes this experience of shame. And it, it connects with me for the, with the Brahma Viharas because it's, um, it actually arises from our capacity for empathy and for connection. So the Brahma Viharas arise because the mind is in contact all the time. It resonates with things. We need, we can't but connect. And also we, we, we need to connect. So shame is, is our fear of disconnection. And actually not to have shame is a pathology People who aren't, who have no shame, are the only people who have no shame are the people who aren't capable of empathy. So the very fact that you're here and you can practice Brahma Viharas, um, it means that you also have this other capacity, which is the capacity for shame. And this is completely normal for all of us. Um. So, admitting our vulnerability. And often when we have other reactions, other emotional reactions that get flushed out when we do this kind of practice, we can actually find back behind them somewhere is this sense of shame, this fear of, of not belonging, of not being okay enough to belong. So we do things to numb ourselves from this vulnerability. We don't want to go there. We don't want to see it. 
But the trouble is when we numb our vulnerability, we also numb our capacity for joy. And really all, all change and all creativity requires a vulnerability, requires this flexibility in this movement. And shame is different from guilt. It's not, you know, guilt is I've done something wrong, I've made a mistake, I've done something wrong. But shame is the bit that says there's something wrong with me. I'm wrong. And what we tend to do with this is, is we keep silent. Right? The things that we feel shame around are the things that we keep silent, we keep them locked away. And this kind of empowers them. So we don't have to name all these things to other people, but we have to start opening them to them in ourselves. And this takes this very important quality, which uh, is also maybe... It's not one of the Brahma Viharas, but we're speaking of the heart. And uh, the essence of the heart is courage. So this word courage that comes from the word kur, heart. It's like where the Brahma Viharas are around, then courage is around as well. This ability to live wholeheartedly and authentically. So we need, we need to connect. I'm looking for a poem that I have that I think speaks to this very beautifully. So this is from Mark Nepo. And it's, oh no, it's not Mark Nepo, it's Daniel Ladinsky, and it's after, inspired by a poem by Hafiz. He says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you don't do this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. <laughs> Still, though, think about this. This great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye? That is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in the world is dying to hear. So when, when we connect with our own 
desire to be loved and connected, we also um, connect with that desire in other people. And that is a real, the basis of compassion. So to speed up your speed up your path of practice, it's good to remember that the, the whole the whole wheel of the Dharma was turned out of compassion. The Buddha's teaching is such a, an immense and complex thing because so many practitioners over millennia have elaborated on it, added to it. Um, in the Pali. Pali tradition, they say that there are 84,000 heaps of dharmas. There's a tremendously complicated amount of teaching. And if we have the sort of mind that likes to figure it all out and somehow think that figuring it out will provide the solution. So before I became a nun, I I trained as a lawyer and I thought the way to, uh, to freedom was to get everything right to get the ideas and get it all right. And this is missing the point. So the Buddha actually said, I teach one thing. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. (coughs) He only taught anything at all because he was persuaded that there were beings down there or out there who were suffering who had but little dust in their eyes. And out of compassion, he could do what he could to help them. And he didn't really say there's, there's suffering and the end of suffering. He was saying, I see your suffering. It's a personal thing. It's not something that's out there. It's something that's in here. So the Buddha says, I see your suffering and I have the medicine and I want to help. So to really get traction with the practice, we have to be willing to see our own suffering too. So it's in this, that's another uh, famous saying, it's in this fathom long body, not this one or this one or this one, but this one that there arises the truth of suffering and the truth of the end of suffering and the way to the end of suffering. So let this practice and this practice of the Brahma Viharas be a way of coming home to yourself and um, use them to open to what's here in you. We can set them up as these guiding, guiding stars but the the medicine comes from applying them within. So I think that's enough from me. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.